Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Cindy and Elvin Angelo to the podcast. Cindy and Elvin's three-year-old daughter, Vera, was born with Sturge-Weber syndrome, a rare neurological disease which has caused Vera to experience seizures for most of her young life. Cindy and Elvin have been public with their family's challenges and in doing so have raised awareness around Sturge-Weber and epilepsy. They're here today to discuss their journey with Vera and the connection between epilepsy and Sturge-Weber syndrome. Cindy, Elvin, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having us. Uh, So Vera has Sturge-Weber syndrome. Tell us what that is and what it entails. Yeah, absolutely. So Sturge-Weber syndrome is a malformation of blood vessels that uh, appear in the face, uh, your eyes, and your brain. Basically, when Vera was born, uh, her blood vessels didn't, uh, didn't form properly. And they formed on her face, so it actually created a birthmark uh, on the right side of her face. It also, the blood vessels also wrapped around her eye, which caused glaucoma, so she deals with that. And then it also wrapped around different parts of her brain, which causes a slew of different issues, from muscle weakness to epilepsy. So epilepsy is often a comorbidity of, of other syndromes, diseases. In fact, it's, it's always the symptom of something else. So... Vera has epilepsy and Sturge-Weber. Which was she diagnosed with first? How did you come to these diagnoses, chicken or the egg? So she was first diagnosed with Sturge-Weber syndrome uh, at birth, pretty much. We saw the port wine stain as soon as she was born. Um, and her eye, her right eye was blue. So after that, we took her to a pediatric ophthalmologist who confirmed the glaucoma. And at that point, when you have the port wine stain and the glaucoma, it's considered Sturge-Weber syndrome. Um, We also took her to CHOP in Philadelphia, uh, where they uh, confirmed there was a neurologist who ordered an MRI, and that confirmed the brain injury. So uh, a neurologist would uh, consider it Sturge-Weber syndrome once you have all three components, whereas an ophthalmologist would consider just the glaucoma and the port wine stain. Um, So the MRI did show a brain injury in the occipital lobe, and we were kind of alerted that she might have seizures, but nothing was confirmed because it's very so much with with every child. So some kids never have a seizure in their life uh, with having Sturge-Weber syndrome, and it's really hard to place when it will happen or what it will look like. Uh, So we just knew that it might happen, but we didn't know when. And so... When did it unfortunately happen? So it unfortunately happened at three months old. Uh, I was actually on my parental leave at the time, and Cindy was just transitioning back to work. And on, I think it was the second day, we started. I started noticing uh, her eyes switching, uh, rapidly moving back and forth. And then her, uh, her wrist as well as her foot were also twitching. So I called Cindy immediately and just told her what I was seeing. I sent her a video. She recommended to immediately send it to her sister, my sister-in-law, because she's a pediatrician. So we sent it to her, and she basically told us that she thinks it's seizures, but we should definitely contact our neurologist. So we reached out 
to our neurologist at the time, and he immediately told us to take her to the ER. So we took her to the ER, and we were there for six days, and immediately upon diagnosis, uh, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. Yeah, that was, uh, my gosh, that was January 24th, 2019. I remember the date. I mean, you never really forget those, like, like really impactful moments. Um, but it was so casual the way that the neurologist, she called us to our hospital room after Vera was on the EEG and she goes, yeah, it's epilepsy. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, just so casually, she was like, she's having hundreds of seizures. She's, she normally would read uh, for about 24 hours on an EEG before treatment. But with Vera, she decided to start treatment right away because she was having hundreds of seizures over and over again, and she wouldn't stop, and she was only three months old. So, uh, you know, the, the right thing to do was to just start the treatment, and then, uh, you know, they started her on Keppra. So that's terrifying that you're, like, bringing your child into the hospital, and they're moving forward so quickly because of the volume of seizures. So she gets started on Keppra. Did that work? What was that journey like for you over those next few months? The thing with uh, brain medicine is it usually can take about a week or two to start taking effect fully. Um, and so it did not work. And it was a gruesome two weeks of us trying and just constantly trying to record videos of her and the duration was getting longer for the seizures because they were a couple seconds long and then they just started getting to a minute and two minutes and three minutes. And, you know, it was really, uh, I think for us, the waiting was the hardest part. And then they realized we took her to NYU's epilepsy center after we were discharged and another set of EEG leads were hooked up and they realized that since the seizures were getting worse, you know, that's the opposite effect of what the Kepler should have been doing. They decided to add in Trileptol, which is another uh, seizure medicine. So at the addition of Trileptol, that started to, you know, slow down the seizures. And then adjusting the dosage of that medicine started to uh, stop them completely uh, for about three months. And then she started having infantile spasms. So the those two medicines weren't used to treat infantile spasms. So she was six months old now. And uh, I remember it was Memorial weekend. We were in the NYU Epilepsy Center and we just couldn't get them to stop. We had to put her, they had tried uh, two times the rescue medicine um, and it would, nothing would get her out of the seizure. And at that point they decided, you know, the EEG confirmed infantile spasms. They decided we need to make a decision on treatment and it's not the uh, trileptol, it's not the Keppra, it's something called Sabrol, which unfortunately can cause peripheral blindness if you're on it for more than six months. Uh, and you have a daughter who already has glaucoma yeah. and right. eye issues. Yeah, she has peripheral blindness on the left side of her, of both eyes, because the brain injuries in the occipital lobe, which can controls your vision so we were like you're asking us to choose her arm or her leg like we just but we we prioritized her brain you know because that was the most important thing and we needed to stop the seizures so we did decide to start her on the sabral while she was on the Keppra and the trileptol uh this is a six-month-old baby this is a lot uh we she was basically a lump you know she really didn't do much for those first I would say nine months of her life almost yeah. like almost ten uh, but 
the sable did work to control the infantile spasms and you know unfortunately that's the lucky ones you know where a medicine does help your child is just being able to put her on something that could cause blindness but stop her seizures because yeah. a lot of kids don't respond to medicine for infantile spasms and we know that and we are really grateful that it worked for Vera uh, but she was on a really high dose for her weight so at six months uh, after she started that medicine, we had to start weaning her off of it. Um, and we did. We weaned her off of the Keppra because it was it was never working for her. She was on the Trilopdol still. She was on the Sabral still. And then uh, after six months, we weaned her off the Sabral and that stopped. Uh, the infantile spasm stopped. But then she started having focal impaired seizures. <laughs> so this was her third seizure type at one year old. Um, and her neurologist told us there is only three medications that you can use for surge Weber syndrome babies that, um, you know, before having to have brain surgery. So we were adjusting dosages for the Trilopdol and just playing, you know, a waiting game until that started to work, which thankfully after four months it did. And she was seizure free for a year until this past June. What happened in June? She just caught a cold. Yeah. She got a she fever. She spiked a fever, and then the fever triggered the seizures. I don't know that people quite understand how fragile seizure freedom can be. It really is. You're still walking this tightrope where you get a cold, a, a simple virus, you spike a fever, and the seizures are back. Or, especially with children, they get bigger and they gain weight. And then you have to adjust those medications. Again, seizure freedom is such, it can be so fragile, especially with a young child. How long did it take to um, regain that seizure freedom in June? It's it's so hard to tell because she was just really tired and lethargic, you know, at when even when like the minute she woke up and as she was going throughout the day. So eventually though, her body caught up to the medication. I think yeah, it was probably around two weeks when we when we started noticing she was back to, you know, her normal, cheerful, incredibly sassy self. But we had to increase the medicine by another full ML, which for a little girl that is a lot. But she's now back to being on a controlled dose. So I think that that's a win. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. So right now, how is Vera doing today? Vera's, Vera's doing really well. She's thriving. I mean, she's playing a lot uh, she, development, developmentally, whether it's you know doing painting or coloring, or if it's even physical development, like running and jumping, playing on blocks. She's, she's excelling. She's potty a, trained? She's potty trained, which what? has been... Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's been amazing. It's been a bit of a struggle, but definitely amazing. Yeah, she is sassy and opinionated <laughs> for sure. I'm so lucky to have been able to see that firsthand. So are Vera's doctors able to give you any sense of a prognosis as to what they think her future will look like? 
So the prognosis tends to be poor uh, in regards to Vera's condition, and that's mainly just because the doctors don't really know. I mean, whether it's Sturge Weber or it's, or it's epilepsy, you know, those seizures can come back at any time. It could be a fever that, uh, that you know, triggers off the seizures. It could be, it could just be her growing, uh, you know, as she develops more and as she continues to, grow, uh, to gain more weight. The medication, she might need more medication. And until, we won't know that until the medication doesn't work and she starts showing signs of seizures again. So ultimately, we're just kind of taking it day by day. Yeah, and the the one thing that we've learned is as she has uh, cognitive spurts, as she's growing, her her brain is growing and making new connections, and the seizures are making new connections too. So what's happening is she's been having different uh, seizures, and they're presenting in different forms, and they're varying in lengths, and they're varying in severity, um, you know, for example, infantile spasms is a, a medical emergency. That's a really dangerous type of seizure that she had for those six months that she had them. The tonic seizures she had before, the focal impaired now, they're all presenting in different ways. So we're never really going to be prepared for what is it ever going to look like um, and how long is it going to be until she comes out of it and regains consciousness. So there, and some kids don't ever have a seizure. So this is the problem is they're, they're not able to ever let us know. And we ask every time and, and they always say, oh, Vera's doing great. And how will Vera be doing in the future? Nobody knows. So we're in this constant limbo of being ready, you know, almost for anything, especially when she does something really amazing. Like she took her first steps and she had 30 seizures that day. And I think that that happened when she crawled, that happened with her first words. Yeah. That, so we're always on high alert for every milestone. Um, unfortunately, like we're so excited for her. And then we always have it in the back of our minds, in the pit of our stomach that we have to be ready to go to Epilepsy Center in NYU because this could be, you know, another week long stint of, of seizures. The back of your minds and the pit of your stomach. I, um, I feel that one in my soul. When you have a medically complex child like Vera, finding that community and finding that support system is integral for having a healthy, uh, a mentally healthy family. How did you go about finding resources and other families to connect with? Through social media, I mean, everybody is constantly posting and outreach uh, and doing fundraisers and trying to get the community to, you know, listen and hear what we're trying to say and how we need the research for finding a cure for these conditions. Um, and so I would look at the hashtag for Sturge Weber syndrome and for epilepsy and see what other people are posting and how they're coping. Um, and I found a few moms. I found, you know, we ended up with knowing three women who have Sturge Weber syndrome themselves. And they're all over the place. There's one in the UK. There's, you know, two in, in the United States. And I think that that is where we reach people the fastest is just online and through these support groups on Facebook for the Port Weinstein. Um, we met a ton of people after we did the um, donations for Vera's first birthday for the Cure, uh, for the Cure Gala, too. I love that. I love that 
you know, I have a love-hate relationship with the internet, as I think most of <laughs> us do, but this is yeah. one of those places where, you know, it really helps, you know, that you found someone in England, like you never would have met them in your regular right. life if not for these connections. Yeah. So how was it that you found Cure Epilepsy? So we both work at Salesforce and we have something called Ability Force where we connect uh, persons with disabilities or their family members with disabilities to different causes and try to help us, uh, you know, with volunteer work or with donations. And uh, my mentor, when I first started Salesforce, had done a Hamilton fundraiser in Chicago. And she was working with me one day and I was talking to her about my daughter who has epilepsy and she said, you should reach out to Kelly Cervantes. And I was like, who is that? And she told me about the Hamilton fundraiser. She told me about Seizing Life. And she said, I really recommend you listen to her podcast and read her blog and maybe even reach out to her. She's really nice. So I listened to the episode on infantile spasms and I was just crying my eyes out. I texted Elvin. I said, you've got to listen to this podcast. And it was right after Vera was diagnosed with IS. So for us, that was so close to home. So I emailed you and you actually responded. I was like, oh my God, you responded. <laughs> I was so happy. And so I, I remember your email and I still have it. You had said to me, it was, uh, you know, it was great to connect and it's unfortunate that we have this awful thing in common. And I was like, yeah, that's completely true. But the support and knowing someone else is kind of understanding more of what you're going through and also has like just the the same where it's like we're on the same side against this bad guy you know the the seizures and the epilepsy are the bad guy and we're kind of united to help kind of just cope with that and deal with whatever we get have to deal with yeah it's this crappiest club to be a part of but the people yeah. who are members are just the most incredible yeah. people that you will meet and and for that I'm grateful so you just had a second child who is giving Vera a run for her money in the cute department um, <laughs> what was that journey like I have to imagine that you know choosing to have a second child and then being pregnant and the fears that sort of came along with all of that, what was going through your mind? Uh, we were definitely scared. I mean, it took us a while to even, like, decide to even try for a second child. Yeah. Uh, just because of the experience that we had with Vera. Like, you know, you Vera's, Vera's syndrome, Sturge-Weber, it's congenital. So there was no way to trace it back to us, to our genetics. To, to know that it was there before Vera was even born. Uh, you know, we, you find out if you have Sturge Weber at birth. So for us, uh, having well, It's not another... something you can test for exactly. in utero. Exactly. Or do yeah. IVF and test an embryo or anything like that. It is just, you find out when the baby's born. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, a, it's also an incredibly rare condition. And thinking back to it being so rare and just some of the conversations we've had, and talking about having another kid, you know, I feel like a thought that's always come through my mind is that, oh, well, you know, it is so rare. What are the chances of your second baby getting it? But the fact that it happens and it happens to a lot of people that we now know through Cure and through different social networks, yeah. uh, it just makes it that much more scary. Uh, but we always wanted two kids. We always wanted a boy and girl. And we didn't want 
we didn't want our experience with a rare disease to prevent us from having, you know, one of our goals, what we wanted. We grew up with siblings and we wanted that for our child as well. And we just thought it'd be, you know, we envisioned our life to have at least four of us where we would have Vera playing with another sibling, regardless if it's a boy or a girl, but just have, allow Vera to have somebody uh, to grow up with. And that's ultimately, you know, once we realized that it was, it was a hard decision, but it was also yeah. the right decision. We did the normal genetic testing when you're pregnant. Um, we did do that. The The recommendation was that we tested Vera also with some blood work, but I didn't want to subject her to that because she has to take uh, blood work often for her seizure medicine levels, you know, to just make sure that it's at a ther therapeutic level. And it's just awful. So <laughs> I realized that it wouldn't change what was happening with this baby, whether, you know, the baby had a condition or not. And also we saw firsthand that there was no way all of all of my testing for Vera when I was pregnant with her were normal. So I realized that even if everything came back normal and we put her through additional testing and we did anything else on me, the baby could end up having something that you couldn't test for. Uh, so we, we made that decision to not even bother with it. We just basically had nine months of anxiety <laughs> on top of the already having anxiety. Uh, but when he was born, yeah, he he came out perfectly healthy and he's been healthy, knock on wood, so far. Um, and so I think uh, the chances of lightning striking twice on us is, is probably really low. Now, do you have any advice for other parents out there who are in those early stages of navigating an epilepsy diagnosis or a Sturge-Weber diagnosis? Yeah, I think talk about it. I mean, we were really, really nervous to talk about it with anyone when Vera first got diagnosed. We were scared to say it out loud. We were scared just of even the stigma of seizures and epilepsy. And uh, I think also of just her birthmark and her glaucoma too. But we really were worried about what would her development look like. Uh, because I think when you're a parent, you often go straight to, oh, will she walk early? Will she talk early? Will she do this early? It's always early, early, early. And everything for Vera has been, you know, six plus months behind. So for us, there's that little bit of, you know, hesitation of saying it out loud and making it be real and then having other people know. But once we started talking about it, once we, you know, listened to the podcast and we started talking to other parents on social media, we really felt supported. And uh, honestly, just like taking help from family members of making meals for us while we're in the hospital and, you know, or bringing us clothing, you know, because we, you know, you're there for so long and you're on like sharing a couch. And so we started packing an overnight bag and keeping it in the trunk for clothing for all three of us, snacks for all of us, some toys for Vera, adult coloring books, like anything that we could think of that help us just stay calm while we're in the hospital. Those were all things that really helped us stay prepared. And then we keep a log. We, we record her seizures in two different ways, which I would recommend uh, for people who are not that, uh, who are new to this. Uh, we would videotape her and upload it to our drive and send it to the neurologist. But we also kept a log on our notes app that we share with each other. So as soon as we see something that looks like a seizure, we record the date and time, we record what, what we're observing, and then we put the duration. So how long was she unresponsive? 
and then we keep that running log. And we'll take a screenshot and send it to the uh, neurologist or we bring it with us to the epilepsy center or the hospital because your mind is frantic and you're not really thinking about how long that was. And honestly, 10 to 15 seconds feels like years when your child is unresponsive. So we really need to start timing it and we need to keep that log, you know, just keep us ourselves honest. Yeah. <laughs> and then also to be able to track, uh, are they getting worse over time? Uh, and then if she's having clusters of seizures, it hasn't been over five minutes because if it is, then we need to administer the diastat, which, uh, which is rescue medicine to make her come out of the seizure. I love that that's, um, that that's something that like through the notes app that you can share. So that's yeah, something yeah. that, you know, you can both reference and look at, um, uh, when you need to. Cindy, Elvin, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, Vera with us all. Uh, it just, it means so much. And I think it's going to mean a lot to the next family, the next Cindy who is, you know, nervous and, and walking these first steps for that child that has infantile spasms or Serge Weber. So thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. You. This is really helpful for us too, to just talk through it again with you. Thank you, Cindy and Elvin, for sharing your story and for all of your efforts to raise awareness around epilepsy and Sturge-Weber syndrome. As Cindy and Elvin noted, there are only three epilepsy medications that Sturge-Weber patients can take before surgery becomes their only option. The Angelo's daughter, Vera, is currently on her third medication. For this brave little girl and for all those impacted by epilepsy, we need to fund research that will lead to new discoveries and new therapies. Every day, scientists are engaging in research to bring new therapies to people with epilepsy. And every day, Cure Epilepsy is working to raise funds to advance this vital research. We hope that you will help by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.